Hello, hello. Welcome to hello. Rising with the Tide podcast. Uh, this is hello, our... Skander. <laughs> hello, Jamie. <laughs> this is our first official stream. I am so, so happy. We finally... New uh, Year stream. We finally clicked that button with uh, efficiency and tact and... <laughs> yeah, it's taken us a while. Yeah, the, you know, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, courageous viewers who've really like stuck with us uh through loyal. loyal viewers who stuck with us through all the tech difficulties will know that we've been on we clicked that online like go online button Wait, maybe so any, eight any or nine viewers, times any viewers we had last time just couldn't hear me the entire time yes just you that's correct okay for an hour no and a half they were so happy <laughs> for about one hour and a half uh no one could hear jamie i was just talking to myself on, on the internet <laughs> Which is basically just a normal episode. Um, yeah. So... Really <laughs> oh, but uh, but yeah. So thank you so much for joining us uh, today, everyone, for watching. And uh, of course, this is available on uh, Twitch Live, but it will also be on YouTube uh, as soon as the uh, recording is done, and on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the places that you listen to the stuff. It will be there as well. However, please know that as we are streaming and we discussed it in that first stream, uh, we are doing this a little bit in a way to cut ourselves uh, a bit of slack and, and stop having to do three hours of editing for every episode. Uh, so you might hear a little bit more background noise. You might hear a little bit more ums and uh and mm because I'm not cutting them all out <laughs> like I usually it's do. Natural. It's naturalistic. It's fine. Yeah, I leave all of yours in, Jamie, though, because, you know, <laughs> it well, makes, yeah, me, uh, makes me you look You can't actually better. cut them out because I, so, I do it too much. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so just bear with us through the, uh, the unedited versions of this. I hope it will be worth it for you as it is for us. Today we have a... Super, super awesome guest that I'm so excited to, to talk to because I've read a lot of her stuff um, with Claire Burgess, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania in the School of Geography, Planning and Spatial Sciences. Claire here holds a double master's in law and development studies uh, from the University of Melbourne. Her research interests are around community transformative approaches in the discipline of political ecology, which is very close to, to my own as well. Um, and she apparently examines the settler colonial roles of Australian mining companies these days with her PhD research uh, in an extractive response to climate change. You're also a committee member of uh, AidWatch Australia and uh, have international development experience with NGOs for research and education in Myanmar. It's a pretty, pretty uh, impressive CV, I have to say. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm super happy to have you on. Thank you so much for, oh, for coming. And Thanks thank you so for waking for up early me. for us. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No, it's an honor. I really enjoy your podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Because uh, I know you are currently in Tasmania. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Lutruwida is the um, local Aboriginal name for this area. Yeah. And I grew up here. Um, yeah. little island off an island yeah yeah i'd uh yeah i looked uh, a little bit into uh into the history apparently they call it the uh, holiday island or the uh <laughs> what was it called 
the the happy island as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I have never good, heard of that. It's a good those. sign. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's yeah. uh, definitely a destination to add to the list. I mean, the pictures look absolutely insane. Mm. Is it? Uh, is it just like? I don't know. Do you just wake up and go to the beach and then come home <laughs> to the beach and just again and again? <laughs> I wish um but yeah there's definitely people that can do that I live near the beach I'm not too far away and, and definitely um getting into the surfing this year which has been Ooh, awesome. yeah that's pretty nice uh, it um, is cold though the water is deadly cold but yeah we've got got really good weddies yeah uh, I just got into surfing Makes us tough. last year <laughs> <laughs> yeah <that's>, oh, really? <laughs> I, I just got into surfing last year um in Costa Rica, obviously the, the water is a bit different. <laughs> it's, it's like 30 degrees or something. Um, and then I come to Oslo and my my friends are like, hey, do you want to go surf? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then Jamie and I took a little dip in the in the pond the other day. Yeah. Was, uh... We did okay. We, we were in there for like four seconds. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty impressive. Like it's pretty chilly there right now. <laughs> it makes you just not want to like fall off your board. So I guess you just get really <laughs> yeah, good at surfing. Good. Yeah, when yeah. I like tested, I put my fingers in the water, and it's that kind of cold where you're like your hands aching for a good like ten seconds. Are <laughs> it's like Ooh. that sucked yeah. like quite a lot of heat out my fingers just then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Claire, you're currently doing a PhD in uh, yeah. the school of geography, planning and spatial sciences. How is that going? What can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, maybe that's kind of where we can start. Is um, your journey up to this PhD because you have a double master's mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so did you always see your, I guess it's kind of my first question, but um, did you always see yourself going this route through um, some professional experience, some academic experience, a PhD, which you know not everyone decides <laughs> to do? Uh, was this a natural path? Um. Yeah, natural in the sense that I kind of followed my intuition, what I was feeling into at the time, and then also uh, that aligned with opportunities that came up. Um, But, yeah, after my master's thesis, I was like, wow, I've really done my head in with this intellectual work and I need a breather. I need to, like, um, go out and experience what these theories look like on the ground um, and then applied for work um, in research still but in a sort of developing country where I could see how a lot of these issues were playing out in terms of so my master's looked at um, large-scale land deals in in relation to biofuels and how they're impacting on poverty in Mozambique. Um, so I had that lens of understanding land-related conflicts and um, the role that uh, transnational companies, for example, play in that, in sort of influencing policies and things like that. So, yeah, I, I wanted to get into that on the ground and understand it a bit more, but I always had in the back of my mind that I'd like to do a PhD, mm. but I really enjoyed um living in Myanmar and the challenges there and things. So I ended up four years and then I'm like, okay, you've really got to get back. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then and I really wanted to do a bit of activism as well because I was supporting a lot of activist work over there but hadn't really ever been an activist um, in the sense of participating in grassroots movements or um, protest. Before that, I'd been very much in the research space. 
mm-hmm. yeah, so kind of got back here and got really excited about um, XR when that popped up and um, some of my favourite you know, people like George Monbiot was saying, everyone needs to join XR. And I'm like, woo. So got really heavily involved in that. And, um, but really started to understand my politics was different to others in, in that movement. And and obviously there's a lot of diverse perspectives there, um, which sort of led me to think I needed to go back into um, understanding a bit more what I meant by climate justice or ecological justice and social justice um, in terms of the climate um, because it was, yeah, it seemed to be a bit different to what I was hearing from folk here. And, yeah, and that really took me into exploring what I wanted to look at originally with my PhD was um, climate justice movements and how they were going to potentially bring about transformative change. And so I started to really dip into the conversations happening in that space and kind of joined in on COP26 coalition conversations. And then I heard this thing mm-hmm. about green extractivism. I'm like, what is that? Because <laughs> um, it kind of ringed a bell to, for me because I'd explored biofuel projects, which were sort of a result of green, quote unquote, um, policies in the EU. So I had some understanding about green grabbing and these concepts but hadn't heard green extractivism and I'm really grateful for a close friend um, and comrade who I've gotten to know through XR who works um, in Ecuador in relation to green extractivism issues um, and is really connected to local groups there who started to campaign around this issue and so I kind of went right this is it this is what I'm going to have to look at I'm I, I'm going to look at this for my PhD so that sort of I really wanted to be sort of led by what was concerning folks on the ground um, and that's sort of led me to where I am now um, but yeah it took me a little while to feel out what I should look at and I really wanted to f- understand what was going on from the perspective of the grassroots campaign. So I spent a lot of time this year connecting and building relationships with folk, um, at, which meant my literature reviews are really being smashed out at the moment. But, um, yeah, I feel like I'm grounded in the, um, at least grounded in um, the struggle. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. really important that political ecologists these days just own that that it you know we're in a planetary crisis and we kind of need to um be in solidarity and 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 mm-hmm. yeah so that's where I'm at that's how yeah. I got there <laughs> I, I guess after like having these like practical activities like seeing these struggles in the real world that would have like changed the way you see not just your research but like how you how you approach research like completely yeah Absolutely. And coming from Australia, a a so-called Australia land that was stolen, um, in order to sort of feel through that process in terms of wanting to transform the research praxis and engagement really led me to understanding Indigenous knowledge sort of around this space so I've been reading a lot about research as a ceremony process research as yarning um 
and building relationships with Indigenous, you know, voices here has been important, I think, for me in sort of situating how I go about research in this space because a, a lot of the time it's communities from Indigenous groups. And, and I struggle with using the word Indigenous because I know there's problems with it, but because I'm looking at this from a global sort of perspective, mm -hmm. it's happening all around the world, I'll use that word. Um, yeah, and so that has led me to engage with a, a lot of long, lengthy conversations with people and sort of learning about how we can co-produce knowledge together through these yarns and walking and exploring even movement in some ways. I've been exploring movement as a way to kind of store my research, if that makes sense. Um, it's still sort of evolving, but, yeah, definitely been looking into different forms of um, yeah. research practices. Yeah. That, that so, sounds really that interesting. Sense. Like maybe we could like and and this I'm not familiar with this term yarning either. So like quite, <laughs> yeah. we could talk a bit more about that. Maybe. Yeah, it's like to have a yarn. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely come out of in Aboriginal English in Australia and mm. to reflect the process, the democratic processes that um, those societies rely on when making decisions which would be, okay, there's no timeline, right? You you sit down and um, there are un, like unspoken protocols that everyone knows they need to sort of abide by, but um, the, the process of coming to a resolution requires like listening to everyone, sort of active listening and allowing the conversation to evolve in a way that it becomes a collective conversation, it becomes one whole yarn that everyone embraces and then comes to the same conclusion together, which I find quite lovely. And, and I think academia does do that to some extent. You know, you're reading what people are saying and then you're saying, oh, this person says that, this person says that, and then you're like, this is where there's a little gap and this is where my contribution might be to add to this yarn. And so but seeing it as a relational process I mm. think is important because it transforms that idea that we are competing with each other and we're like, this is my idea, yeah, you yeah. stole my idea or something like that, you know, that creates those divisions mm. that we're trying to, I think, as political ecologists challenge. Um, yeah. And yeah. I like that it's not, I mean, there's obviously constraints with my PhD. It's, it is time bound to some extent, but um, working through the process of having lengthy yarns with people um, that I want to bring into the PhD and have those voices be heard in that as well. Somehow, we'll see. That's the intention. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was um, super excited to... For, I mean, I am super excited for, for this episode because um, I think one of the main reasons for it is that uh, I, I bring this up uh, from, from time to time. But as you said, like political ecology, the political ecology topic, especially of green extractivism and such, has um, kind of like seemed to kind of just appear in your life a little bit, right? And like kind of grab <laughs> you. <laughs> and I feel like it, it was the same for me as well. Um, and I feel like it's the same for a lot of people. And one of the people that kind of helped out, I guess, with this, uh, 
this interest was uh, was Xander Dunlap, uh, someone that you you've had a bit of yarning with. You, you you've told mm-hmm. us before, um, and yeah, and so since that episode that we that we did with him, it's true that yeah, it, it really like brought at least I know myself it brought me into a lot of this um, this zone of of really thinking more critically about about the solutions that were given um, about mm. these like holy grail kind of uh, solutions. And, and yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to get like a little bit deeper into this topic specifically because we haven't, we've been able to touch on it a little bit here and there since that episode, but we haven't really had an episode kind of on that topic, I think, uh, at least not, not in as much depth. So I'm, I'm excited to get into uh, that a little bit. Um, yeah. but, but on the topic of yarning, I, I, uh, I want to know how do you feel about the like limitations that, um, that academia might put on you in terms of, uh, for example, like your PhD, like this is something that I'm sure a lot of PhD, uh, candidates would be, you know, very curious in is like these sort of alt- not alternative, but like different methods of, of, uh, research and such that you just kind of talked about how difficult is it or how possible is it to really bring it into a PhD? Are there like um, systemic kind of limits to what you can really do? And does that in a way uh, shape what we are taught to think of as real research and unreal? Um, certainly think there are challenges within the academic institution around that specifically regarding sort of ethics applications and needing to kind of fit this rigid structure um, that has sort of quite narrow um, purposes Um, and it's not really fit for purpose in engaging in a broader um, discussion about ethics which would I think lead to more conversations around the importance for relationality and yarning in research. Um, So I think there's that, but at the same time, there is a lot of good um, academic work that justifies this approach. And I think it's about finding that first to be able to really speak to your supervisors around that. Um, If you've got academic articles that you can refer to to say, look, this is really important at this time and that this is quite a common approach in my discipline, mm-hmm. then you can speak to it from a, um, from that kind of standpoint. It, has, it holds a bit more weight. Um, but, yeah, it took me a little while to, to recognise I needed to do that. I just thought instantly, oh, my supervisor will get this, like they'll totally get what I'm doing and I don't need to really explain it. You know, it makes sense to me, so it should make sense to <laughs> yeah. them. And then there was sort of like, yeah, but, but I had to realise that, no, no, I need to really kind of be good at communicating it and uh, explaining what I, I was trying to do. So, um, yeah, as a tip to others wanting to do that, um, it's good to sort of just read a little bit around what what transformative um, guidelines there are around, um, yeah, and decolonial methodologies. There's some good stuff out there. Should we maybe dive a little bit into your PhD topic? Like, sure. can you give us a little bit of a, I don't know, a pitch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no stress. No, oh. <laughs> no um, yeah, so it's been a work in progress as I'm going along working alongside um, 
grassroots movements and different NGOs working on this space. So I came to realise that um, Australia, which I should have known really, is um, quite a big player in the mining industry overseas as well as here. Um, and they have a particular style of, I guess, extractive extractivism um, that I think is really grounded in settler colonial logics as well as sort of the historical processes that occurred before that to that led to kind of an extractive relationship um, to the earth. But I think it's really important in understanding this extractive approach to climate change through the lens of, okay, who are the key actors and how are they going about shaping this approach and what are, what are their roles in creating this, um, this mining boom at the moment and who, who are they connected to and who are they working with? So that's been my interest. And then um, I've been looking at three key minerals that have been deemed to be important for Australian companies in their role in sort of um, extracting the raw materials for this clean, quote unquote, um, energy transition. And um, yeah, I wanted to understand a bit more about the discourses that uh, underpin uh, the justification for um, these companies going in there. So, um, yeah, read, read a lot of Alexander Dunlap's work, incredible writer, really creative as well. Um, and I am quite interested in, in the idea of the social or his notion of the social engineering of extraction and the different technologies that are applied by state government um connections in order to sort of create social license for this and um it's quite concerning how insidious it really is and um the different soft and hard technologies or techniques that are used to um ensure or coerce um communities into these projects um and the divide and conquer tactics and things and how that's really um grounded almost in the same logics as colonial um, occupation, mm -hmm. um, both the missionaries for the soft and then the sort of um, hard techniques of the government and the um, invaders that we call them here. Um, yeah, and I think that synergy is interesting to look how the mining companies have kind of almost adopted that same approach um, to continue to extract and how Australia is becoming sort of this we're being called upon by the big players like the UK and the US want to secure these critical mineral supply chains yeah. um, not only for low carbon technologies although that is what's driving demand and will be driving no. most significant demand um, and yeah, obviously they also want to keep um, a line of access to these metals for military equipment and a range of other tech technologies that is relied upon to maintain this kind of modern crazy world that we live in. Um, yeah, so interesting to, to, to also unpack a little bit of those geopolitics. Um, and I'm still drilling down... Um, in terms of case studies, but I think there's one really important one that I want to unpack, which is um, South Australia, um, which is held up by sort of green 
politicians and and other folk that are so more, sort of more left-leaning as this sort of beacon of the best kind of example of adopting renewable energy in Australia um, and there are mm. sort of um, more right-wing I would say polit politicians so liberal governments government um, but whilst they are transitioning to renewable energies they are they have taken a lot of land from Indigenous people. They strip land rights from them to access um, this, the world's largest deposit of copper um, mm -hmm. in this gorgeous um, area of called Lake Torrens. And um, so I think it'll be interesting to examine the discourse that goes around mm. um, the justification yeah. of um, mining in that place as it relates to clean renewable energy that. Um, policies there yeah and you you yeah. wrote about uh copper in the copper communique um article can you for aid watch right mm -hmm. um, yeah can you maybe tell us a little bit about the, uh some of the info from that communique but also just a little bit also about what aid watch is so viewers can also yeah. learn about this uh, org yeah, I, I was so excited to get to meet um, Nat Lowry, who is the the main person working for AidWatch. And mm -hmm. um, because when I went to uni, just a little um, intro to this, but when I went to uni, um, I learned a lot about AidWatch as being like one of the more sort of critical, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, orgs that were actually watching what, um, Australia was doing with its aid money overseas and were mm -hmm. really critical of that and looking at the militarization of aid and the way that aid is deployed to sort of manipulate um, developing countries to allow Australia to come in and sell its main products and things. And so this, you know, was something that I was quite aware of while I was in Australia. I remember <laughs> It's ridiculous that because um, I was actually sorry I'm going off on a quick no 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 go here, for it go for it I'll come go back <laughs> um, when I worked for um, yeah I was deployed by Australian government as a volunteer over in Myanmar um, so I was connected to the um, the development um, champagne sippers over there <laughs> <laughs> diplomats and whatnot yeah so we would go be invited to meetings um, with the embassy and um, they were introducing beef to Australia so um, one time and I just thought that that is utterly ridiculous to be honest because <laughs> Myanmar's just opening up and it has so many challenges and to, to try and push beef just seem ridiculous anyway so um yeah i've loved aid watch for calling out this kind of dodgy behavior over in other countries which um you know a lot of people think aid is like taking our taxpayers money and giving it to other people that don't deserve it it's it's not yeah. you know it's it's in service of industry it's in service of the um political interests of our country more than anything mm -hmm. and so yeah I love the work that they do and um yeah when I was chatting with um so they they've worked on a, a number of campaigns related to green extractivism for quite some time now um there's been the case of deep sea mining that the um that's been involved in for I think 10 years now really calling that out um saying that the companies um 
uh, greenwashing by saying that to, to dig up the deep sea, it's much better, it's more sustainable um, than doing it on land and things like mm. that. Um, so she's been, because I think they called themselves deep green metals initially <laughs> um, and they had to change that in the end. But, um, yeah, and she's also been supporting or AidWatch has been supporting uh, a SEPIC campaign, which are a group of um, concerned sort of civil society groups and folk on the ground in Pap Papua New Guinea really um, concerned about a big project over there. It's like a massive development project, but part of that is a mining for copper along this um, mm -hmm. stunning what, what has been sort of listed for tentative status as World Heritage Area. Um, so AidWatch has been, I guess, supporting grassroots movements, calling out mm. this kind of um, green extractivism in terms of, when I say green extractivism, I mean sort of indirect green extractivism. So green yeah. extractivism is when... Yeah, it, I feel like we should define it maybe for, yeah. for <laughs> yeah. our viewers who aren't super because it, it, it like we we see it a lot when we work with it, but um, it is quite a niche term. Otherwise, um, would you say that green extractivism is a philosophy or an approach towards extracting raw primary resources from the earth in with the defense that it will be used for climate change or green uh use would you say that's kind of a yeah very that's brief... a good yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think it's still an evolving like concept as well but you know um because extractivism the concept of extractivism has a history of being um, used by grassroots movements as well as academics. So there's this kind of interweaving of and evolving of this term that's very quite political. And, it's, and, and when you're using it, I guess it needs to be recognised that you're taking a stance that you are playing a role in a global struggle by using mm -hmm. that word. Um, and so for green extractivism, it's been used by some activists or NGO groups as a term, yeah, to, to cover the whole sp spectrum of the supply chain demand for renewable energy and um, other low carbon technologies like electric, electric vehicles, yeah. um, whereas it's been defined by academics like Dunlap as um, encompassing more the the extractivism of the vitality in terms of the sun, of solar and wind um, and the conflicts that go around the rollout of that technology and the indirect green extractivism is referred to as the um, processes that lead up to that, um, mm -hmm. that are quite extractive, such as yeah. the extractivism that goes on with the raw materials and extractivism, yeah, is a contested term in terms of... Um, its definition and some folks in the academic space um, refer to it as kind of like a totalizing mindset that's sort of eating up the planet and, and a way of relating to not just the earth but to each other or to mm -hmm. consuming and uh, sort of like a mindset whereas you know you have scholars from Latin America who speak about extractivism as a particular type of extract mining extractivism or agricultural extractivism that um, pertains to um, transnational companies coming in taking um, the material and then exporting it and right. that leaving 
um, that particular nation and local communities um, quite deficient and used. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've seen a lot of like anti-capitalist <laughs> uh, critiques of it. I mean, like people linking it to capitalism in, in the sense that uh, a capitalist system is inherently extractive um, or, or produces extractivist like um, contradictions throughout it. Um, I I just want to maybe hone in very quickly on the the copper uh, communique. Um, mm-hmm. There's something in it that that really like stood out to me when I read it, which was um, you wrote copper uh, according to Goldman Sachs is the new oil. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. quite <laughs> quite a, quite a, a key sentence. I feel uh, if Goldman Sachs is them like if they're themselves, they are admitting or or just saying outright that. Uh, co- they view copper this highly um, and that apparently you say also that it's, uh, the demand for metal in general uh, will increase by 600% um, with copper related products by proportion the highest consumers of metal uh, so we're kind of going to see a, a, well if we're not already seeing a sort of gold rush in a sense towards copper Um and and again, do do you think that this this rush is going to maybe lay bare a little bit more the extractive like the, this extractivist uh, philosophy that we talked about? Because I feel like it's still very like I said niche thing. Like it, not that many people really think about it. And even I mean, I remember we had one uh, guest that was supposed to come on the podcast once, um, and I, I dared to say that. Uh, the uh, electric vehicles might not be the absolute total solution we put them out to be because of the extractivist uh, <laughs> potential, and <laughs> and we got blocked on Twitter for that. From him. Wow. <laughs> he just blocked yeah. us straight up without saying Oof. anything else, just saying you should watch what you say before you say it, or else, uh, or yeah, before like spreading misinformation or something. So, so I mean, mm. even and this is like someone with a doctorate, like this is a professor. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people are still kind of with their heads in the sand about this yes do you think yeah. that this like people like uh, i mean companies like goldman sachs uh, kind of saying it outright uh, and admitting kind of that this is also for green tech um do you think this will put the issue a little bit more to the front of the stage yeah look i don't know and it depends like there's a lot of diversity around what what speak of what um how something might convince people that these technologies aren't necessarily what we hold them up to be and it depends i guess on your values and your politics and what what you really are striving for and what you want to see happen in the world and where you're coming from and so i think um like it actually for me when I really realized that renewables quote-unquote were not what we thought they were I I actually felt physically sick um I had a very visceral experience and Mm. and to start even thinking in my mind to challenge it was it, it, it was a real struggle um, and that I had to work through emotionally. And I think there is a lot of emotional attachment to this idea that um, fossil fuels can be replaced by renewable energy. And, um, yeah, so 
um, Xander looks at that, like that that dichotomy and the problems with that. And um, so I think there is that something in that that needs to be challenged and worked through. But um, yeah, certainly looking at companies and their language and how they're going to make profit from it might be um, a point that changes folks' mind. But that said, um, I I think it's the scale is what's going to get people potentially. So, for example, um, in order to reach the two-degree scenario, um, set out in IPCC targets and, the, and, and considering the climate commitments, we'll need, um, according to the research I've been looking at um, in, in a sort of sciences around sort of economics and applied sciences and, uh, sorry, what are the other places? Uh, anyway, <laughs> they say that 89.4% of the global reserves of copper will have to be extracted and that's, taking into account recycling to meet this two degree scenario initially right so do you know um, if that's sorry yeah um do you know if that no 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 my bad Uh, i just very quickly wanted to know if that's 89 percent is that of uh, known reserves or is that also with like estimated um unfound because i know there's always like kind of two numbers one which is the one we know of and then the ones that we kind of think there are but we're not sure yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure that's the known reserves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Damn, um, that's, I mean, that's still that's impossibly large. <laughs> I, yeah, and without recycling, I think it's 130 percent. So it's going over, and then you know it's not ca- taking into consideration long-term yeah. um, concerns around when these technologies um, end their life. And yes, so, yeah, it's it's big, and I hope that. <laughs> folks start to look at this because and and this sort of scholars at least not so much um in the or sorry not so much the green politicians but the scholars around who are just looking at the pure material implications the the geopolitical context and just can we get these metals um is it even feasible and they're they're raising the alarm to say that it's um it's probably not. So then, and that's not even considering like the impact on ecology, on local communities who have been dispossessed violently often, or the emissions that go into um, these mining activities. You know, um, the mining industry is one of the most heavy energy intensive industry and destructive in so many ways, including. And so, um, yeah it really gets my goat that they're now able to um, say that what they're doing is saving the planet and they're playing yeah. that role in, yeah. And, and what, but hopefully, the, oh, yeah. No, you're right. I think hopefully um, people learning a bit more about these global supply chains and how um, insidious they are and connected to dirty money and all the rest of it and how mining industries are playing a role they'll start to realize that actually this is potentially what we need to be looking at these supply chains and these um, addictions to material raw material and how that we're hoarding so much of that end product in our um, wealthy nations and that's what's upholding our um, 
so-called way of life and that there is a real cost to other people and other environments as a result of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, because um, I, I guess a main sort of element that the discourse of green extractivism is trying to sort of turn on its head is like, this is renewable, this is all good. Um, I wonder um, if these sort of, you know, I'll just say like extractive groups or extractive bodies, do they even try to address when they, you know, seize the land of indigenous or local uh, populations or when, you know, when violence breaks out, do they even try to formulate a discourse for that um, controversial element or is that something they just try and sweep under the rug completely? Yeah, it's um, something I need to look a bit more into, but I think uh, is it Stuart Kirsch looks a bit at um, the how science is often deployed to justify um, mining activities, and it's um, very biased. <laughs> and, um, but to sort of make these conflicts out to be um, just a clash of culture, right. and yeah, so oh, they're just not educated about the benefits of what we're bringing um, and they need a bit more um, because they're backward Indigenous folk who don't um, quite understand the importance of modernisation and so there's the same kind of lo colonial logics actually yeah. and um, yeah that is still really pervasive today. Right. I was invited because our geology and geography departments are connected at UTAS, which I'm like, eh. but <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the geology department is all funded by pretty dirty um, sort of Rio Tinto and And anyway, so I got invited to this um, uh, day of celebrating Indigenous peoples um, across the world in from the geology sort of department I'm like oh this would be good if I go sat down there and then they basically just started speaking about um indigenous people from various different sort of um mining areas where that had been untapped for mining so they had um, started talking about the different Indigenous people in DRC. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And they started talking about Indigenous people in Ecuador. And then one lady said, oh, uh, someone asked a question about the um, conflict in Ecuador. And she's like, oh, they, they are just backward. They don't know oh. a lot in Ecuador about things. And yeah, and, and that's what's behind the conflict, not this mm. actual genuine concern for their livelihoods or genuine concern yeah. for the ecology, or there's no recognition of indigenous relationality with, um, in terms of responsibility around taking care of the vital life systems that sustain us. Mm. So none of that, it's just like they are uneducated, backward, non-modern people on the periphery that we need to just give um we need to educate or physically remove and get yeah. them out of the way and we know that there are a lot of um yeah violent tactics that are used to um threaten the folk who, i think we should all just stand down i think we should all just carry like uh <laughs> colonialism whistles and just just start going <laughs> just whistle like <laughs> <Hang> on, <laughs> yeah. as soon as someone starts I like that. bullshit like that you just, <laughs> just <laughs> press the button for the alarm and just <laughs> instantly next to the fire alarm yeah. yeah that's cringe colonialism right there <laughs> stop it no <laughs> but yeah, i no, actually got up and terrible. walked out and did a bit of a like oh. shut 
shut the door really loudly. I can't believe myself. My physical reaction was like, <gasps> and I got up and I walked out. And then I, I went back into you. my room. What were the people like yeah. nodding their heads? Like, was this not a controversial yeah. thing to hear? Like, hmm. yeah. I, and sometimes, I mean, I, I think sometimes it takes a lot of different forms that, that colonial mindset, like it can even um, kind of like, mm. I remember we had a, uh, a talk with, um, well, a talk, if you can even call it that, a book debate organized by the University of Oslo with uh, Björn Lomberg, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the most infamous climate uh, skeptics, let's just call him that. Uh, it's been nice to him by calling him that. And uh, he had, a, there was a question at one point from the audience where a lady walked up and she said, um, I think we need to address the, uh, the white elephant in the room. And me and a bunch of my classmates looked at each other and because it's been a terrible, terrible event where he was just allowed to just say climate skeptic stuff. And we just looked at each other and he said, ah, white elephant in the room. Maybe she'll address the fact that uh, all the guest speakers so far have been men and all of them white as well. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then she just goes and says, we need to address the white elephant in the room. The fact that overpopulation in the global south will do <gasps> will basically doom us all because they will use so many resources. <laughs> oh and we were like, oh no, <laughs> what is she doing? <laughs> so and and like I spoke to her afterwards trying to explain to her that uh, you know that I think that stuff is vile and, and also un- completely mm-hmm. unfounded. I mean it's it's pure Malthusian like uh, thinking and and she yeah, I think she just didn't understand why it was you know like it's obviously not to defend her but i think that uh, a lot of these people who have these kind of like colonial mindsets haven't even really like entertained the idea that it could be colonial or that it could be uh uh, kind of uh paternalistic and so i don't know and it's strange to me that they don't but uh, I guess you kind of mm-hmm. are also a bit of a product of the world you grew up in. And our world yeah. is colonial and paternalistic. That's for sure. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I, we've internalized that. And I think in Australia in particular, being a mining um, economy, we've internalized it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and not having a treaty with Indigenous people and things like that. We've had to really build our nation on these colonial mindsets. Um, quite pervasive mm-hmm. one of the uh, questions that arises from your aid watch uh article is um can copper mining be green and that's so so i feel like this stems a little bit from uh, a more general discussion of uh you know i guess mining in general can it be green and that in itself i feel is a really important part of itself of another conversation which is um how can we live a sustainable life that doesn't uh, endanger things like progress in modern medicine, let's say, or, uh, you know, some of the more like, I think, life affirming things that the modern world has, uh, has allowed, obviously, lots of criticism for modernity, uh, and for technology, etc. But one of the things I've always kind of struggled with myself is that uh, is is to try and like find this limit of like yeah okay there is maybe no green mining 
uh, or at least it's impossibly difficult to, to make it green in any way. But surely we do need some mining for some things which are either life-saving or um, or that we feel are life-affirming. I don't know where, like, so yeah. I'm trying to like kind of put this piece of the green mining into that mm -hmm. as a limitation in a sense. I don't know if you see where I'm going with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, it's about coming back to um, what we value, I think, a little bit and trying to work through um, what, what's worked in the past and um, what hasn't and what are the grand narratives that underpin those approaches and that um, stop us perhaps from thinking differently about how we might organise um, societies. Um, and I think a lot of it um, is also about having yarns and, and having diverse voices um, brought into the conversation and coming together collectively to talk about these issues and how what we want to value in life and what we want to take forward. Um, and certainly, though, I, I did want to mention that the, there's been a lot of dodgy bioprospecting that was um, foundational to modern medicine, so a lot of stealing yeah, of Indigenous sure. knowledge, yeah. which also, like, so for me telling the truth about our histories is a big part of it you know um and there's been a bit of work on that lately like um critiquing the origin stories the grand origin stories that really underpin our idea of linear trajectories around progress um that aren't quite um helpful i don't think um and quite foundation founded in sort of racial um ideas um, and at the same time not really grounded in good science either um, mm -hmm. it like taken um, sort of cherry picking of various different things that happened and creating a sort of really simplistic linear um, storyline and I, so going back to those stories and starting to untangle them and um, rework them based on I think yeah, collective values about what we want to see in the world. And humans, I think, are good inherently. We are the, both good and bad. And um, we have the um, potential to be um, quite exploitative, but we also have the potential to be really quite loving. And um, I think Indigenous communities in Australia over the years um, demonstrate, um, at least in, in their recounting of various different um, key events over the um sort of last 30 to 40,000 years, which, you know, they're so, uh, they have been really great at holding stories through um, art, culture and um, ritual to, to remember these things, but that um, there's survivalist tendencies in us that, um, you, that society sort of need to deal with and work out ways that how do we learn to and work with these sort of aggressive tendencies in ourselves and um, create societies that um, are holistic and, and about sort of land-based kind of local uh, reflection of the, the ecology almost and create our societies based on that sort of humble societies, I guess. Mm -hmm. I know that's challenging to think about now given how hyper, you know, modern we are and, um, but I think it comes back to coming together and really talking and about the stories that mm -hmm. we've told ourselves over the past and a bit of truth telling um, and working out what we want to keep and what we don't in the yeah. future. I guess what, what I was more like 
going towards was things like, uh, you know, like X-ray machines, for example, uh. or uh, MRIs. Uh, let's say wheelchairs, like things that mm. things that we. I think a lot of a lot lot lot, lot of people would have a uh, very you'd have a very hard time convincing to kind of uh leave in the past in a sense any any person mm. would have a hard time convincing me personally to leave x-ray machines in the past but x-ray machines need copper as well as mm -hmm. well as other mm -hmm. rare earth minerals so mm -hmm. i guess i'm always kind of conflicted in the like at where is that like baseline if we mm. do things like degrowth or if we do things like mm -hmm. um uh like yeah, yeah just degrowth in, in in general where is that baseline at which like we say okay this much we actually do need and mm. at what point does the morality of it kind of like get flipped on its head where well we need this metal or else all of these people are going to be affect, affect, uh, affected in life-altering ways but to get that metal we need to take over this locale and their mind and etc etc um so i don't know if you've this is something that you've thought about a little bit yeah um yeah well i guess again I, i keep coming back to that what do we value and that should be those those narratives we have about what we value should dictate um what we keep in terms of technology and what technology should be remain should remain and what shouldn't um be scaled up and i guess it does come down to a little bit of um, critiquing capitalism because capitalism is just like one, it, once it gets a hold of a technology, it's like, right, how do we um, ensure that this is something we can appeal, like appeal to the masses with and that um, we can roll it out everywhere and everyone can, can get a hold of it and, um, and how do we build into that um it, a short lifespan so that you can then um have to buy another one and um yeah. yeah so there's um yeah I guess I haven't thought super hard into to what techno you know um the impacts of other technologies um I think that just looking at this low carbon approach to climate change is um really important in the sense that if we follow this up, if we follow those low carbon technologies um, um, trajectories without critiquing the social and, and um, uh, economics and underpinning um, our, our way of life, um, we're not going to fix a climate problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we've got a bigger problem on our hands. We've got near-term extinction on our hands so you know yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. so really um tapping into the concerns of folks about you know um their futures around this and getting a conversation going around well what why have we depended so much on the exploitation of the global south without even questioning it um and i think because we're so separated from where that that extraction occurs and we're so we have so many products that we have no idea where they've come from and what's been involved in that so again learning about that speaking mm -hmm. the truth to that um having better consumer awareness i think the majority of consumers are quite ignorant around this um and and that's because there's been an active campaign to for them not to um know <laughs> about yeah. where these things are going uh, we have come from 
but yeah, I don't know if that really answered your question or I just went on a rant. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you're. I mean, it's it's not an easy question. Like it, I think it deserves a, an episode on its own, uh, with probably yeah. a lot of us to yarn together for. <laughs> um, yeah. But, what yeah, do you I, think? Uh, that's that's why i'm asking the question because i i have no idea (laughs) but but honestly like it is kind of something that keeps me up at night a little bit in the sense i Mm. i just kind of sit there and think like i don't i don't sleep sitting i I lie there and i think (laughs) (laughs) i just kind of lie there and think like what is like where is this goddamn baseline like there must be a in a sense, mathematical value of some kind, whether it's mm. energy usage or material use or something that we can find, that we can calculate for each locale. But then how do you define that geographical area? Like, is it, for example, Tasmania as a whole? Is it Australia as a whole? Is it like, at which point, it's also a question of democracy. Like at what point uh, can Australians around Australia decide what's best for Tasmania? At what point can someone from the north of Tasmania decide what's best for someone in the south of Tasmania, et cetera? Et cetera. And like, it, it's a interweaving of, of questions that I don't think will ever be fully answered, but that I'm very excited seeing people kind of take bites out of, you know, um, of that that big cookie that (laughs) will have to be eaten at some point um and i think it needs a lot of different diversity in terms of approaching it and coming at Mm -hmm. it from different angles and like where you're coming from it hadn't even thought about that like baselines and mathematics like dividing Mm -hmm. out how we might distribute resources Mm -hmm. in a in a healthy way and yeah i'm starting to visualize things like really cool and um yeah having these conversations and and, Mm -hmm. and allowing voices to come in and um uh add to that aspect like i like the idea of um oh, Gadamer, i think he's oh, i'm not pronouncing that seeing his name probably but the idea of fusion horizons and so you have all these satellites around the globe and then they all have a very uh, different perspective on 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 the planet and mm. then like so molding them all together in this like fusion of horizons this like how i think will help the problem yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah. rather than just having looking up even looking up to the climate scientists like these problematic as don't look up demonstrate <laughs> because they're they're just humans and they're also like have their niche expertise in being able to tell us how fucked we are sorry for the language and then but not necessarily able to really talk about what we need to do because it's a big <laughs> big complex sort of problem yeah i i agree we need, need to find find the right strategy and almost have the right infrastructure to have the actual population have a, have a real input on these conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the, what you mentioned, Claire, about um, kind of those different worlds, I think it also relates to the like quantitative and qualitative kind of uh, visions as well. Like, I think yeah. both both are so, so important. And we I feel like in academia, maybe... I don't know, maybe this is just my experience of it, but I feel like the one um, derails the other a lot. Like, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, denigrates? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other a lot. Uh, I don't know if mm-hmm. that's from French. Uh, sometimes I take French words and use them in English. Sometimes it works. Um, <laughs> but basically, I feel like, I like a lot that. of people who do qualitative work, work 
talk shit about quantitative work <laughs> and the opposite goes as well you know like qualitative yeah. work people kind mm. of like uh, social scientists here who kind of love to you know say that the qualitative the quantitative people sorry the people who work with more like numbers and stuff uh don't have hearts but then <laughs> you know the quantitative people sorry i know this is getting confusing for those listening but the quantitative people <laughs> seem to kind of look down a little bit i feel upon the the qualitative because they kind of see it as too like not focused enough on the real idealistic, world yeah. like idealistic mm-hmm. what they call the real world but i think it's so necessary to have a mixture of both like balance and everything always it's yeah. we need that sim- that like empathy and heart while uh really like getting our hands dirty with numbers as well because we can't yeah. just speak poetry and have you know uh like modes of production new modes of production pop up oh <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely yeah and it's about that relationality between disciplines opening up those conversations and recognizing that um they all have good things to contribute but the system has been built up on these ideas of competition a lot um competition mm-hmm. over funding or competition over status um that really need to be transformed um and i think i'm lacking my PhD, I sort of summarise a bit of the more quote-unquote hard science or quant science in the beginning and I'm a bit nervous. I've been a bit nervous like "Mm, my um, supervisors like that's not your discipline you know you're summarising literature from a different discipline but I think it's um, I'm trying to sort of justify it as that well this is a literature that speaks to energy transitions and it's multidisciplinary and I think it's really important to understand like the material um, you know, uh, uh, limitations to this and then to weave in the social science around well, what are we missing around power dynamics? What are we missing around the ge- geopolitical dynamics and things that aren't necessarily considered in that other literature? But, yeah, um, ha- ah, I'd love to know how you think we can build these um interdisciplinary conversations because I think <laughs> what what's happened in the past I think is just yeah this idea of like competition has been cherry picking of Charles Darwin I think and he actually talked about cooperation as being really important for society's mm-hmm. survival you know um so how do we cooperate around yeah. this like, we had genuinely- um... We had the the absolutely amazing political ecologist, although I think he hates calling himself that. Um, Paul <laughs> Robbins on the show, oh, like wow. a, a few, a couple, one month ago, something like that. I mean, it's before Christmas. Awesome. Yeah, he, he graced us with his presence. Absolute legend, <laughs> of a man. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I actually is it here? No, I have his book somewhere. But um, he, yeah, he was telling us about his work at uh, the University of Wisconsin Madison and how at the Institute, the Nelson Institute, and how they almost force, in a way, um, their students to to be interdisciplinary, to be interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary, like to to really like if they're doing research on, um, let's I think he said something like he had a coworker or a, a postdoc or something who was doing research on birds, uh, bird populations in the Amazon using like. Um, audio uh, analysis so they would like basically l- put a big speed like a mic and listen to the bird calls and by mm. doing that um, estimate the population of birds yeah and to kind of pair that up to basically 
push them to pair up their work with uh, someone from, let's say, the other side, even though, you know, it's also like he's also pushing them to go into the hard sciences as well, etc. And so you have people who would be studying that that then link up with people studying the geopolitical, uh, like, leather trade, for example, right, huh. in, the, in the Amazon and why that has been decreasing the bird populations. And so you're not just studying this, like, oh, uh, bird population was this high and today, uh, and 10 years ago, and today it's this high. <laughs> and it's like, and that's mm-hmm. it. There you go. Information in the vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And it's like, no, it's like we, awesome. we, we don't have time even to, yeah. I feel, to just do that. I think it's so important that like when we do this research, we, and, and he was, I think he was really adamant about this, that we acknowledge the, um, the context of, what we are researching um context matters so 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 much and and you know he Mm -hmm. he's also very aware these days i think he's working a lot on the like uh, colonial context of the of um of the u.s and and you know what indigenous land he's working on and living on and 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 learning from that as well um yeah yeah context people that's awesome (laughs) so important yeah absolutely yeah that made me think um about something and then I went somewhere else oh no yeah about um nature rights like so Mm -hmm. there was this tribunal it's sort of like a mock tribunal about what it might be like to have um nature speak in court about um its rights and how it's feeling (laughs) with regards to projects and impacts and um so some, you know, ecologists were recording the sounds of the forests and then in one period of time and then going back and recording it after, say, 10 years of deforestation and things and then playing that sound in the courtroom. And then so, you know, um, because nature rights have, it's definitely come from like Indigenous world cosmovisions and um yeah, so linking that with sort of the science as well as then the politics, which is involved in the, the legal aspect, it's it, it, it's created this quite powerful kind of, yeah, pr- applied practice of acknowledging the rights of nature and seeing how that might be embedded in constitutions and whatnot. Um, and I think that's a product of multidisciplinary sort of efforts. Yeah. Have, you, have you read... Um... What's the name? Escobar and his uh, pluriverse uh, stuff. Yeah, that so reminds yeah. me of that a lot. Is a uh, fantastic like work on on the same kind of topics as well. Um, just um, honing in a little bit on the uh, on your your own research a little bit. Um, we're kind of switching topic again. Sorry, but <laughs> just had this question in my head for a bit, and I forgot to ask it before. Um, has Australia um, made some like significant steps in the past, in like the recent past, in terms of mining and its approach and stuff? Like, I wonder. I was wondering basically if the government kind of line has been consistent um, in terms of how much should be taken from the land, how much should be imported or exported, like. I I know that a lot of countries like uh, global north countries are kind of seeing these like resistance movements to uh, it's like a weird simultaneous thing where they feel like they need to be uh, protective economically and especially uh, not given to anything like uh, like the Chinese markets, for example. And so they yeah. feel like they need to 
get all their rare earth minerals and, and stuff at home. <laughs> and then at the same time, mm. they see people from like, uh, so the, the places where they're going to mine, like rise up in, in defense of that. And I, I wonder if you could just give us like a little overview of the, uh, of the landscape of like Australian mining, um, if, if you if you could yeah sure well um yeah i'm still learning a lot because i've been overseas looking at um other countries previously but yeah definitely the government is pro mining without a doubt and there is a revolving door within the um uh, government mining council nexus like people come in and out and um i think it was scott morrison talked about our clean energy policies before going to cop 26 is um yeah we're just having a, a key role in um the mining aspect of clean energy and that because we're good at digging stuff up and so the landscape is that yeah we need to get these metals and we need to get them now and um what australian companies are saying in collaboration with the various different shareholders and stakeholders that influence their narratives um, which reach across to the US because most of our companies are owned by US interests aside from right. Twiggy Forest who is a really weird green saviour character but that's <laughs> another story um, <laughs> calls himself Twiggy yeah and Forest and um, he is his last name is Forest but um, right. yeah uh, he, he's really a um, big on green hydrogen and things like that and green right. steel and green everything uh, yeah. um but yeah he's exploiting copper and or attempting to exploit copper over in mm. ecuador um but yeah so i think it's all like quick let's reduce the red and green tape and there's been a big push for that um by the federal government uh, but then it's different at the state level depending on what um mm governments in power there but that said in WA we have a Labor government who are pro-mining pretty much and um, they are very supportive of the mining industry as it pays and this is a problem like when governments are looking at or tax collection as well as um, regulation it's like a conflict of interest I think because you know you're getting a lot of money from the mining industry and very connected to the mining industry in that regard but uh, quite happy to um, not regulate them very well. So mm -hmm. in, in regards to like cultural heritage is a big issue here and, and the environment, obviously, but cultural heritage is something I've been looking at a lot. And ministers in every state have distract, distract, ooh, what's that word? discretion over yeah. <laughs> approval of destruction of cultural heritage. Oh, wow. Um, so okay. they can, yeah, not the Indigenous community or the local community, um, not the land title holders, but the minister. <laughs> um, and so if there is a sacred site, um, the m minister can say, well, yeah, sure, it's a sacred site, but we've got economic, you know. <laughs> Needs. <laughs> needs yeah and um that far outweigh the the um cultural values in that yeah. land uh, that particular site right we need, so we need a new the... <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah 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 um so that's kind of i think the mining landscape and and because it's um you've got coal mining and 
gas fracking, it's everything here. Um, it really shapes the landscape. So the environmental, um, actually the environmental law isn't so bad. It's that it's not really implemented with genuine um, to, uh, to its um, intended purpose, if that makes sense. So again, the minister can decide whether a project goes ahead. If, if that project, um, like the Adani project, was deemed to be problematic in terms of its impact on the environment and mm -hmm. the climate, it goes through a process of EIA um, environmental impact um, where the federal environmental minister has a last say again. <laughs> so oh, wow. no one okay. really... So no yeah, checks and, and balances then... then. No, and so we've got um, the EDO here as Environmental Defenders Office who are like constantly going to court and trying to store these projects, but it's 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 like putting a little fire here and then a big one bursts yeah. over there and it's um it's I, I worked for a little bit with the Environmental Defenders and got quite depressed thinking about it, honestly. It's like there's there's such mm. amazing, incredible lawyers and they work to the absolute bone to just get one little win and then it pops up again over there. Yeah. Hmm. If, does is, that make sense? Is there, yeah, yeah. Is there a large um, like population of uh, land defenders and, and kind of insurgency against these things or in, in Australia, I mean, specifically? Um, no, not yeah. uh, in uh, Aboriginal groups to, uh, are tending to be the ones to be more leading on the ground sort of um, blockades and things like against Adani and various other projects. But um, there are some like Blockade Australia are starting to do some um, pretty intense stuff, which is quite cool, like um, stopping trains and things. Um, and then um, in Tassie, so we have Bob Brown Foundation, they set up camps in the forest and really hold space there and us trying to stop projects there, which are also driven by um, demand for tin in <laughs> the clean energy transition. Um, but yeah, it's um, there's a real campaign against um, anyone who engages in these kinds of activities um, because we've had Rupert Murdoch controlling our media for quite some time. The language around eco terrorists mm -hmm. and all that has been even used by politicians and things. And mm -hmm. so there's a real um, stereotype around that that is quite pervasive. And because I, I grew up in a family that wasn't necessarily um, sort of connected to any green movements or anything. And um, so growing up, I, I heard a lot of that, the stereotyping around um, greenies and things because I grew up in a town where there was a... The word they for greenies. The greenies, the dirty greenies, dirty hippies, <laughs> the ferals, all the different names and, um, like, so many... Oh, and I remember, like, um, going to uni and then starting to to challenge some of those stereotypes and mm. being really hassled by um, people down from my way down down the hue and down the small small country where a lot of logging takes place and I was like wow it's it's pretty pervasive these um, uh, stereotypes around um, people who want to defend the forest uh, and I think that's been a um, crafted sort of counterinsurgency tactic in a way by um, various actors. Mm. Yeah, and I guess yeah. I, I I find this is often the like 
the, the lawyers you were discussing earlier, they're sort of taking the challenge head on. They're trying to say like, please, you know, please don't, I, I don't know, don't, don't allow this um, uh, extraction project to go through. And I, I find that maybe, yeah, it's about trying to like step back and change the culture itself because that's driving the sort of public's acceptance of this activity. And so, I mean, that, that, that could lead into sort of like, because you, you said you were interested in sort of the intersection between community organization and academia. Mm-hmm. And I wonder like, if you know sort of the ways academics can sort of contribute to a, a more progressive public discourse that may yeah. perhaps fuel more, more progressive actual policy. Mm, it's hard because academics are already so under the pump in terms of what they need to do and publish mm. and um, uh, teach. And um, so to have that time for doing the sort of advocacy work and community work is, um, I think, challenging. But I think, yeah, it's so important as well. And maybe um, to build it into the practice of research would be important in the future like it being a key component of um teaching is that you go and sit with a community and hear their concerns about a project or something like that I don't know I'm just being off the top of my head but somehow bringing in um an action oriented approach but I think the challenges are that um we're so often um accused of being biased by doing that so there was a scholar in our department who called out the forestry industry or did some research on the forestry industry here and it got torn to pieces by politicians and things and a whole investigation into the department and whatnot. So like when there's really powerful players invested in research that's supportive of their industry and and you produce research that's not, it's it's hard. Um, Yeah, look, I don't know what the answer is actually, but um, yeah, definitely visiting and being engaged in community is important because we can get a bit trapped in our um, academic mindsets and the different tensions between, oh, they said this and they did consider this, (laughs) that goes on sometimes and rather than like, uh, I know I'm being a bit cheeky there, but like, um, yeah, going and living and experiencing things a bit um, to give um, context because, you know, there are quite a lot of people that get comfortable in their elite status and their cushy lives, I guess, and they don't know what it's really like for different groups, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully at at some point academic culture will develop where it's sort of expected that you would have, like, whatever you're writing about, you would have at least got involved in it in a real capacity somewhat recently. Um, Yes. Yeah, beyond just sort of the um, objective lens of looking in at something and yeah. writing notes, you know, <laughs> participating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um I think we're gonna have to slowly bring it to a, a close potentially because I think we're we're running mm-hmm. a little bit into a, an hour and a half soon, so it's uh, it's gone by fast. But um, I did want to ask before we start wrapping it up though uh, about your previous research in uh, Myanmar especially, because that's mm-hmm. something that uh, we didn't really discuss prior to this episode, uh, you and I, but uh, I was re- I'm was i still really interested in uh, mm. what you were doing uh, up there. And um, yeah, and 
-hmm. exactly kind of how you came about uh, going to Myanmar in the first place. Yeah, well, it was sort of that when I finished my master's thesis, I was going, right, I want to go and be in a, um, a situation where I can apply some of these theories and understand things within the context of those theories and see what how things are happening on the ground and work with um, sort of more transformative organisations um, in in those contexts. And so aid, uh, action aid, <laughs> I get confused with it. Hey, watch, actually. Um, I, I loved as well another organization I thought was really grounded in participatory research methods and grassroots led struggles. And um, yeah, when I saw that role pop up in the list of different um, volunteer roles overseas, I was like, yes, I need this. I want mm. this so bad. Because <laughs> they do a really um, great work around land rights across the globe and really calling out. Um, uh, extractive industries in the various spaces. So I came across them while I was doing the work on biofuels in Mozambique. Um, so super keen to work for such a good organisation. And, um, yeah, there was a research role. So I went, yes, this is, this is so good. And, um, yeah, I applied and, and got that and was really lucky um to go there and so I worked sort of with the sustainable livelihoods team and the land team there was a because we're um Myanmar was opening up to foreign investment there was a real concern that land would be vulnerable to grabs grabbing like large-scale land grabs um and that the reform process that was going on um, there was concern that, that wouldn't consider, you know, the rights of customary land practice, uh, customary land um, around, there's quite a lot of various different Indigenous ethnic groups around the border areas and mm. where a lot of resources are located, like so many resources at the time. Myanmar was upheld by um, foreign investors as the, the final frontier. So there was this like rush to get into Myanmar and exploit as much as so um, every frontier could. is the final frontier every I swear guys yeah, this time yeah. it's the final one this is, this is, it, is it, yeah we don't need another one <laughs> yeah the moon's next gosh yeah, yeah. Uh, Mars um but yeah. yeah so really um worked there in using participatory methods um, that were already ingrained in the work that um, ActionAid did and, and worked with youth on developing their own questions around, oh, how, how might we understand um, community land um, practices as well as um, whether those community land practices were being adequately um, recognised in the land governance systems and the laws and stuff so yeah it was beautiful to we, we had a, like a training program where we talked to youth and about these issues and they developed the questionnaires and um, we went off on a trip and around Myanmar gathering data and community voices and focusing on those voices about their both their relationship to land and governance relationship to land and, and what they were facing in terms of threats to their livelihoods around land issues um, and, yeah, then I did a bit of work on um, climate stuff with a NGO um, who was sort of um, concerned about the impacts 
um, not so much of climate actually, sorry, the environmental impacts on uh, Lake Inlay, which is like a big sort of tourist destination. And um, due to the runoff that was coming down the hill and different agricultural practices in the in the uplands, um, the, um, they wanted to sort of introduce new farming practices up there. And I found that one a really challenging um, role because it was pretty much going into Indigenous um, areas and, and saying, hey, your practices aren't quite good. This is what you should be doing. And yeah. by the way, you can tap into this global market and sell these products and we'll link you in with a buyer. And it's like, whoa, that's full um, primitive accumulation, you know, like getting them yeah. caught up in it rather than um, recognising Indigenous local practices and that maybe um, the reason they're using fertilizers and things is because of other factors like climate yeah. or having their land taken or all the rest of it. And um, yeah, that was a challenging one, but, but there were some good things that were being introduced like organic um, methods and things that um, were helpful, I think. But yeah, yeah, that was Myanmar. But yeah, I, 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 I came back after, you know, the, the Rohingya, genocide was pretty brutal and a lot of my colleagues at the time didn't think it was that brutal so I was a bit concerned there was um yeah a lot of folk from the Bama majority population have internalized the like military um racism I guess against the Rohingya there and so they were really not recognizing that was a genocide and they're, and they're sort of speaking from a Buddhist lens saying that oh they've just got bad karma they deserve it and it was like whoa that was a real oh, I really struggled yeah. with that and um and yeah I realized it was time to come home I think yeah but thanks for asking yeah. those questions no, no, I really yeah. enjoyed being <laughs> on this show it, it sounds it sounds like a transformative experience and um and uh we'll actually be talking uh not about the Myanmar uh genocide but the the potential the I I say potential because I have no idea whether it is or not, and I would prefer not to put uh, to uh, to use that word when I personally don't know it. But uh, we'll potentially be having Tekla Haimenot Welder Michel next week on to talk about the Tigre uh, genocide. So, which yeah. I know nothing about, but I'm quite eager to learn about that as well because, like the one in in Myanmar as well, I feel like so many of these conflicts or crises. Uh, that are then sometimes labeled as genocide kind of like pass through the news cycle super fast in mm. our 24 seven news. And I feel like even if you keep an eye on the news, you still sometimes don't really get to fully like um, appreciate. I mean, appreciate in the sense of understanding the, um, the like totality of the conflicts that you're witnessing. It's kind of like, Oh, look here, conflict. Oh, look here, conflict. And then, some of them are like, like you say, in, in Myanmar, like you came back to colleagues who didn't really properly understand the, the scale or, or maybe the atrocities. But, but uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to, to have to, to, to deal with. Um, but yes, on the, on the happier note. I'm definitely going to tune in. Yeah, on the happier note, though, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, it was really a blast to have you on and thank you for being our yeah, first thank you uh, so much. our first official stream guest you yeah no thanks very much for having me. first stream guest 
Yeah, yeah, it's that's first true. First one. <laughs> Love that number one pole position. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me and taking an interest in the, this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And we'll be keeping an eye on your PhD uh, for when you put it mm. out potentially for the public to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. When, actually, sure. I haven't thanks. asked you, but cool. when are you kind of due to finish it in this sort of? I know that they can take wildly different times sometimes, but. Yeah, in about two and a half years. Okay, all right, yeah. yeah. But well, I'm the wanting to still publish going. along the way, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, you're we'll probably always welcome back. Completely different page at the end of that. I'll be, you'll be like, what is she talking about? She's not even talking about the same thing anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking actually uh, maybe sometime in the next few months we could have a kind of, larger discussion or something like maybe we could have a, a rising with the tide like um i don't know like conference or something with <laughs> invite back a bunch of the guests that idea, we've yeah. had and just like have a much larger discussion so um i love that i feel like yeah having one on extractivism uh if you're up for mm -hmm. it we that would be really cool to to try and, and do uh we could Absolutely. invite a bunch of the guests that we've had already before so yeah that's a great but, idea yeah, yeah. thank really you so cool. much claire uh thanks no for, for waking up early for us i really appreciate it nice. <laughs> and, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on yeah, your work great likewise all, right. all the best with your podcast thank you very much thank you take care thank you bye bye, bye. are you ready to tell the other side we start our story in 1493 with a piece of paper called the Doctrine of Discovery, invoked by Pope.